I'm going to read from God's almighty word. I'm going to read from Matthew 9 and sentence 9 through to 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who, have no need of a, uh, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the very word of God. Hey everyone, um, just wanted to extend my welcome as well to Jazz's. Thanks again for being with us um, online as we, I guess, move further and further into this kind of blur stage of the lockdown. It really is getting to the point where I've lost track of how long we've been in this thing. Has it been one week? Has it been 20 weeks? Who really knows? The days are starting to blur into the nights. Work days and work time is kind of blurring into the weekend. Um, and I'm even finding like my, my grip on reality is starting to kind of fall apart as I lose track on whether what, what's reality and what's not. I've been finding that I've been kind of having the same amount of enjoyment uh, from watching the 11 a.m. kind of press conferences each day to work out what's going on as I do from, you know, the survivor who's getting voted out or the bachelor. So I'm starting to wonder maybe we're just in a reality TV show for someone else's enjoyment, kind of this Truman Show Groundhog Day-esque experiment going on at the moment. So I hope, you, I hope you're coping uh, with it at the moment and finding ways to, to get through and just to keep thriving in this lockdown. I've been finding for me uh, over the last little while just things that in the past were just insignificant and now kind of the high points of the day. I've been finding that taking the bins out is something I kind of look forward to. Sometimes I take the bins out like four times a day just because it's an opportunity to go out into the outside world. Maybe I'll run into one of the neighbours, be able to have a conversation. Checking the letterbox as well. I know the postman only comes once a day, but I probably check the letterbox three times a day just for some kind of hope, some connection with the outside world. And, um, and normally it's junk mail, which I used to hate, but now I'm kind of, you know, it's at least something to kind of browse through. But last week I got an actual letter in the mail. It was, a, it was an old-fashioned letter with a handwritten kind of address on it. It didn't actually say my name, to be fair. It just said to the householder. But it had a stamp on it, so it kind of felt real. And so I opened it up, and what was inside this letter was a, a short note from a, a, a lady who had like an old woman name like Bernice or Edna. I can't remember what it was. But it was saying that she was from the Jehovah's Witnesses. And she'd included in this letter a, a photocopied gospel tract, which was basically had a few pictures on it and was really asking the question, are you ready to meet God? Now, when I got this letter in the mail, the first, I guess, thought I initially had was a, a sense of rebuke, seeing as I'm using my lockdown to relive my childhood in the evenings by playing 20-year-old video games, whereas this lady had obviously taken the time to presumably just kind of write letters to random addresses and, and spending money kind of photocopying, getting stamps and sending letters out with the hope of sharing the good news with people. That was the first thing I felt when I got it. But the second thought that pretty quickly came into my mind was really a sense that probably very little would come of this. My guess, I was, I was imagining my neighbours, the others in the block, getting the same letter and opening it and what they might think. And my guess would be that most people getting that letter would think, well, that's kind of a nice gesture, that's a kind of a cute little old lady, but then wouldn't think much more beyond that. 
And the reason for that is, is that there probably was once upon a time in Australia, a time where getting something like that in the mail would really provoke some serious thought. Back when my parents were kids, Australia still had what you would call, I guess, a cultural Christianity, where everyone would have identified with one of the big brands of, of Christianity and had a basic belief in God. And so things like gospel tracts or a thing that used to be big, there was these kind of big outreach events that you'd kind of come along and hear a Billy Graham-type preacher would, would work because there wasn't that big a divide that needed to be bridged. Tim Keller says about, I guess, our cultural climate in, in a new book he's put out called How to Reach the West. He says, Past evangel- evangelistic strategies assumed that nearly everyone held this shared set of beliefs about a sacred order, that there was a God, an afterlife, a standard of moral truth, and a sense of sin. We might call these religious dots that evangelists could assume in their hearers. Evangelism was simply connecting the dots that listeners already possessed in order to prove the truth of the gospel. Today's culture believes the thing we need salvation from is the idea that we need salvation. How then do you evangelize people who lack any sense of sin or transcendence, who lack the traditional basic religious infrastructure, such as a belief in the supreme being or the afterlife? The church in the West has not faced this situation before. Now, we started saying a couple of weeks back, and we've said it last week as well, that we're wanting as a church to spend the rest of this year spreading the message of Jesus to as many people as possible. We're wanting to see people who aren't currently connected with Jesus or even believing that there's a God come to know life and relationship in Him. But gone are the days when the church can just expect that people will take it upon themselves to kind of come and, and, and look into things and find stuff out themselves. Going to the days when we could think we could just kind of just do our thing, get on with it, hand out some bits of paper explaining the gospel, but otherwise just kind of be off to the side and bunkering down. What the world needs from Christians is for us to be a people who are present and engaged and connected. The way that people today in 21st century Australia can connect with the gospel is normally in the context of relationship. It's in friendships. It's in having conversations with people you know and trust around a meal. And this isn't a really radical new idea. This, this idea of how it is that, that the gospel is going to go out comes from Jesus himself. And in the passage that Jesus read to us, what we see is Jesus seeking out, befriending and eating with sinners. We see Jesus, who we follow as Christians, going about trying in, in every way he can to bridge a divide that the religious people of his day weren't willing to do. And so as we spend a bit of time in this now, what I'm hoping for us as a church in this moment is that we would get a sense of the amazing reality that Jesus befriended us even though we were sinners. And that understanding this would help us become a church that seeks out and befriends those who are still far from God. And if you're someone today who's maybe just seen this link pop up and it's been shared and you, you know, you're not normally someone who goes to church, if you're going to take the time to listen to this, my hope for you is really simple is that you would have in this time, I guess, a chance to see what Jesus is like. Because it may well be the case that the Jesus that you imagine or you think of when you kind of picture him in your head is very different to the Jesus that we see in the Bible. That this is a Jesus, this is a person who, who connects with people that maybe we wouldn't expect him to. So when we get into that now, I'm just going to pray and we're going to unpack this passage from the Gospel of Matthew. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask that in, as we look at this just short account of your son, of what he did when he walked this earth 2,000 years ago, that we would be struck by the reality of his heart, that he loves sinners, sinners like us, 
that we would in this time actually be learning from him as to what it would look like to be his follower and to live as he did. And that there might even be some today who, who see Jesus' love for them for the first time. We pray that you just help us be free from distraction in this moment, even though we're on our computers or our phones or our iPads, and there's probably other things that are going to be popping up. We just pray that you just help us just have that, a, a peace of mind just to be in, with you and in your word now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passage that Jez just read to us starts with Matthew, who's the author of this book we've been in for a whole bunch of weeks now, giving his origin story. I think it's the case that we do love a good origin story. Like that's Disney's whole business model at the moment, like pushing out Star Wars origin stories and Marvel origin stories. I don't know who requested a two hours on Black Widow's origin story, seeing as she doesn't even have superpowers. Unless I'm really way off, and maybe she does, but I don't think she does. So there's not really much to explain there. She's just a, a human person. Um, but unlike Disney, Matthew gives his origin story in a very concise manner, thankfully, which we're going to see in just one verse here in verse 9. Matthew is one of Jesus' close followers. He wrote this chunk of the Bible in the Gospel of Matthew. And so you might be forgiven if you're new to this to think that he's kind of, was probably always this kind of clean, good, religious guy. But in verse 9, he explains that he has a darker beginning. It says in verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Now, it might not be super obvious to us as kind of 21st century readers that this isn't simply a description of where he was sitting, but it's a description of his occupation, an occupation that was notorious. In, in first century Israel, the people were under Roman rule. The Jewish people were subject to Caesar and the various kings and governors that he'd set up to kind of rule this vast Roman empire. And while life in the Roman Empire wasn't all bad, there were good roads and a postal system, there was also a lot of corruption. And the, the people groups who were subject to Roman rule were treated as second-class citizens to the Romans. And so Caesar would give the various governors and, and, and kings of the different provinces the ability to set taxes on the oppressed people, to be enforced with the might of the Roman army. And in order to kind of have a system of collecting these taxes when there wasn't like an online system, they would recruit local people to take the office of a tax collector, to set up booths at, at certain checkpoints and roads and entrances to the city to collect tax for the Romans. But to compound it, these tax collectors were, were given, I guess, permission to add their own fee on top of the tax that the Romans demanded. So in essence, there were people who were willing to work for the oppressors and to make money and profit off the oppression of their own people. And if you had an issue with this, you had the whole Roman army to, to answer to. So you can imagine these were not people, these tax collectors that were well-liked. They were kind of the people that you'd think, how could you do that? How could you make that be what you make your money off? There was a disdain for them. It's hard to imagine what, I guess, an equivalent career would be like now because anything like this would be illegal, just extorting your own people. But the disdain that people had for tax collectors might be the disdain that some of us have for, for white nationalists or anti-vaxxers or the owner of a, a private abortion clinic or for drug dealers depending on kind of who you are. But the disdain that the society would feel might be this kind of level of saying, that is just, that's the worst type of person. Like, how could you do that? How could you be that? How could that be what your life is about? It's the disdain for someone who's just acting in a selfish manner. So this one line about Matthew sitting at a tax booth paints a picture of a man who is hated, disliked, with, with actually good reason and avoided people would only deal with him as they had need. And that's what makes what Jesus says to Matthew remarkable. What Jesus says when he approaches him is simply, follow me. 
And it says that he rose and followed him. Now, there's, there's not much more that's kind of explained about this encounter. It's very, very short. It's not clear whether Matthew already knew of Jesus. He may well have because Jesus was a public figure at this time. Maybe Matthew had kind of been kind of following at a distance and, and kind of hearing some of Jesus' sermons and seeing him heal the sick and that kind of thing as well. Or maybe just the presence that Jesus had in this moment was just so overwhelming and the, and the grace and the, and the newness of actually being approached and, and called into something else just got him in that moment. And what we know from the rest of the gospel is that Jesus wasn't kind of just giving Matthew some vague general call to kind of come and join the crowd, you know, follow at a distance, but that Jesus brings Matthew into his inner circle. He makes Matthew one of his 12 closest followers and friends. And Matthew follows. He gets up, he leaves everything behind, seemingly quitting mid-shift, and follows Jesus. So as we just see this, this one line kind of origin story from Matthew, we just need to note that Jesus calls Matthew a person that others wouldn't want to be around. Someone who, on face value, wouldn't add much credibility to the Jesus movement. Someone who wouldn't look like he would fit in easily and get along on face value, maybe with the other disciples. Someone who might even actually make it harder for others to see Jesus as the real deal. Because he's hanging out with this person who's hated. What we see here is Jesus calling Matthew with grace. It's, it's a call to follow him that is open even to people who don't normally fit the bill. And that's what leads us into this next section here where we kind of see this idea expanded upon of Jesus befriending sinners and those who just others wouldn't want to be around. Verse 10 says, And as Jesus reclined at the, ta- at the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So this scene is Jesus in a home around a table with a whole bunch of people over a meal. Doesn't it make you feel jealous? Like I was just reading this this week, like, oh man, like I'd love to be there just to have a meal with people. Like how good is that experience of, of just being around people, having conversation, enjoying food, enjoying wine? That's what we're seeing here. And gathered in this home are many tax collectors and sinners. And it says that there are sinners joining as well, but it doesn't really specify who those sinners are. Sinners was this um, word that we find to be quite, I guess, a a hostile and confronting word, I guess, in our day and age. But in in the Jewish language, to be a sinner just meant to be someone who missed the mark. And to miss, that could be missing the mark in terms of God's standard in terms of your career. So so tax collectors would be that category. We know from other parts of the gospel that, that prostitutes were among those who would spend time and were drawn to Jesus and he would eat with. It could be those who were... Um, who were sinners and unclean by their ethnicity. Maybe there were Romans there. Maybe Matthew had some, some friends who were Roman guards that he, you know, that kind of enforced his taxes that he's invited along to this meal. Maybe it were others who were, who were deemed unclean by their, by their sickness or by their disability. Or maybe it was just other people who just didn't really care about the Jewish standards. People who didn't take God too seriously. People who didn't take the Jewish law seriously at all. And these are the people that Jesus is eating with. And Jesus' disciples are there too. And so they're kind of mixed. It's this picture of followers of Jesus and and those who would be classed as sinners mixing around a table. And it's an amazing picture, isn't it? But when the Pharisees see this happening, they say to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What we kind of see is this is kind of like a nice picture. They find confronting. And in order to understand this, so I guess we need to understand the particular context that, that they were in at the time. 
So context really drives why this is something that's just really not done. So just imagine for a moment you were out you know, this afternoon, you're doing your, your daily walk to nowhere with, with someone, you've got your face masks on, and you're wandering down a street, you've walked down a hundred times, when all of a sudden you hear a noise you haven't heard in a month or more. It's a noise of multiple conversations happening at once. It's the noise of kind of that, you can't distinguish what people are saying, it's just voices happening. And as you walk down the street, you see it's a party. There's some music playing, some people are kind of, maybe 30, 40 people gathered in someone's garage, opening up onto their driveway, spilling out, eating together, drinking together, chatting. And you're shocked because you haven't seen something like that for so long. You see that even maybe they've got the ping pong table out, beer pong's happening. But as you look through the crowd, you see at the end of the, the ping pong table, it's Gladys. She's in there. She's mixing around with these people who are flaunting the rules, breaking the rules and mixing in a time of a pandemic. So what would you do in that situation? Like that, that would make my day. It would be the, the, the best thing happened all lockdown. You'd, you get your phone out. You'd take a snap, sell it to the newspaper because it'd be, it's an unthinkable sight. In our context, like a month ago, it wouldn't be that weird a thing to see. But, but right now, to, have, to mix in a big group in a party is just something that you don't do. It's scandalous. And as someone like the Premier involved in that, who of all people should know better, would just kind of blow your mind. Now, that's the, that's the sort of level of scandal we're seeing here. Houses in ancient Israel were, were generally small. They were places for sleeping, and so gatherings would often happen outside in a courtyard. And so anyone could just see what was going on. And so you get this picture here of these Pharisees who presumably weren't even invited to the meal, walking past or kind of keeping an eye on Jesus and spying on him, all that kind of thing. And they see something that you just would never see. You'd see a religious teacher, his followers having a meal with tax collectors and sinners. It would blow their minds. And it would, it would shock them for a whole bunch of reasons. Firstly, you get to understand that the Pharisees were a people committed to holiness. And not just their own holiness. The thing that I guess they really wanted was for everyone to be holy. They were in this, the Jewish people were in a national crisis. They were under Roman rule. And the Pharisees believed the way that they were going to get out of this, kind of get out of their Roman lockdown, so to speak, was to regain God's blessing through universal holiness. They believed that if just for one day every single person in Israel could keep the law, God would send in his Messiah, get rid of the Romans, and it would be better. But eating with sinners and tax collectors is, is something that would make you unclean. So there's feeling maybe even the same frustration that we feel when we see people breaking lockdown. They're just like, Jesus, you're ruining it for the rest of us. What are you doing eating with these people who are so obviously the wrong people to eat with? Because what they understood was that eating a meal in this context was, was a sign of, of friendship, of, of associating yourself and binding yourself with those that you eat with. A theologian, um, Joachim Jamey, says this about this, I guess, context of eating together in the ancient Near East. He says, In the East, even today, to invite a person to a meal was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. In Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in a meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house has spoken over the unbroken bread. The inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. What Jesus is doing in this meal, as shocking as it is, is proclaiming a new beginning, a new reality in which sinners are invited in. 
to experience a share of God's goodness and love and grace. But the Pharisees don't get that, so they ask the question, why is he doing this? And to answer that question, Jesus says three things. From verse 12, But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's just quickly unpack what Jesus is saying here. He firstly says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. His, his answer here is a simple appeal to logic. Like imagine a doctor who spent his time avoiding the sick. A doctor who is only willing to see healthy patients is absolutely no good as a doctor. So Jesus is revealing how he sees himself. He sees himself as a healer. He's come to heal those who are unwell. But this statement also carries a diagnosis. He's comparing sin to a sickness. Which, if you think about it, is actually a really compassionate metaphor for sin. When Jesus looks at those that the world disdains, those who aren't religious, those who are far from God, he actually feels the compassion of a good doctor. He sees someone who is suffering, who is not experiencing life as it could be or as it should be, someone who needs help and a treatment. And if these tax collectors and sinners are seen as sick and Jesus sees himself as a doctor, then what he's doing at this meal is the treatment. This is what it looks like for the doctor to attend the sick, to extend grace. It's actually extend love and invitation. Because ironically, the Pharisees, in their desire to rid the population of sin, couldn't actually do one single thing about it. They built up walls. They, they built up distance and stigma about those that they deemed to be far away from God and avoided them. But Jesus does the opposite. He reaches out with warmth and love. And again and again and again in the Gospels of Jesus, you see people change. There are stories of tax collectors like Matthew or Zacchaeus, of lepers, of the paralyzed, of prostitutes, having their lives changed in an instant by, their, by receiving the love and the tenderness of Jesus. Jesus is at work when he's eating with his people. He's addressing their need to know the mercy of the Messiah. So that's why he says in this next line, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is actually a quotation of a part of the Old Testament called Hosea, which in chapter 6, verse 6 in full says this. It says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus is speaking of what God desiring for people is a relationship not just empty obedience. And so if the reality is that God wants to show mercy and for people to know him, then the most logical group of people for Jesus to spend time with is those who don't know him yet. Just like it would be weird for a doctor to be around only those who are well, it would be weird for Jesus to be around people who know God when many, many people don't, and that's what God wants. And so then he sums up again in the third line, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is just a really clear mission statement of Jesus. He came for sinners. Those who are unwell, those who are not right with God, those who, who, who do not know him and don't have that relationship with him. And he came to call them to follow him, as he's done with Matthew. He's come to befriend them, to include them in the fellowship of the table, as he did with them in this meal. And ultimately, he came for sinners to die for them. Jesus' ultimate act of healing, his final treatment for sin, is his death on a cross in the place of those who deserve it. 
It's because of this cross which is yet to come in this story that Jesus is able to extend forgiveness and mercy and grace to these people who don't deserve it. Because his mission, the reason he came, was to seek out the lost, to find those who are sick with sin and make them well by his mercy. That's why Jesus came. And in this story, he's foreshadowing this through the simple act of eating and befriending sinners. Eating with and befriending sinners. Didn't eat the sinners. Um, so what does this mean for us? It's just, it's just a great little story. I just love him just sitting in it and reading it and just reflecting on who Jesus is. But, but what, what do we do with this story? Well, first I just want to ask a question, which is that have you accepted Jesus' invitation to follow him, to join him at the table, and to experience his friendship and community? What Jesus is criticized for, in, in a couple of chapters' time, refer, the, the Pharisees insult Jesus by calling him a friend of sinners, as if that's like this really harsh insult, that he's a friend of sinners. That's actually our greatest hope. Do you, do you know the reality that Jesus came... For you and me, sick people who desperately need help. That Jesus said to us, to you, to follow him. And just that, that is an act of grace. That, that Jesus would call you, knowing everything about you, everything about who you are, everything about what you've done, everything about how you think, how you've lived your life. And he's called you to follow him. Have you accepted that? He wants you at the table. He wants to, to know you, to have you know him. If you, if you don't know if you've accepted that, you don't even know, maybe this is the first you're hearing of it, maybe you're trying to work out whether you will accept this call to follow Jesus with your life. Maybe the best thing you could do with that, this lockdown at least, is to jump on Alpha tomorrow night. It's, what Alpha is, it's like a 20-minute you know, video over Zoom and some time to discuss it over a, a, over a handful of weeks. And it's a, a chance to encounter Jesus. It'll kind of lay out really clearly who Jesus is. Because this is an invitation worth responding to. That, that Jesus came for sinners like you, like me, and extended grace and mercy in an invitation. I'd, I'd, I encourage you to make the most of this lockdown by looking into that invitation. In the comment section, there's all the information about our fathers, the get in touch form. We'd love to hear from you. But then secondly, for those of us who, who know this, maybe we need reminding of it again, but, but we do, to an extent, know this reality. We've experienced Jesus' love for us, the friendship that he's offered us. This, is, this passage, I think, is a call to be like Jesus. To be people who go out and, I guess, bridge the divide between this kind of gap between this Christian worldview and, and what it is to be a follower of Jesus and, and the way that most people in our city are living. The picture of Jesus' disciples sitting around the same table as this broad mix of society who are not religious people, presumably enjoying themselves as they encounter Christ together, is like the best picture of a church on mission that I could think of. Given, a, given how, I guess, you know, in so many ways, how distant our city is from God, the answer to that is going to be churches, people in churches rebuilding connections and, and going and, and, and making inroads through friendship, through community and through connection. Jesus' ministry was profoundly relational. Sometimes I don't know why, but we can think of Jesus maybe as this detached being who's kind of up there, staying at arm's length, kind of like a celebrity that you might read about or follow on Instagram, but you could never really know. If you were around 2,000 years ago, you could have had a meal with him. He, his whole three years of ministry life, again and again and again, was just eating with people, making friendships, making relationships, showing love. 
And he didn't like begrudge that. It wasn't that he was kind of like, oh, I've got to do another meal with these people. But, but seemingly he, he loved them. He had compassion. Came across this great quote this week from Dane Ortland, who's written this whole book about just the heart of Jesus. And he says this, which I think is just so helpful. He says, what does it mean that Christ is a friend to sinners? At the very least, it means he enjoys spending time with them. It also means that they feel welcome and comfortable around him. The very two groups of people whom Jesus is accused of befriending in Matthew 11, tax collectors and sinners, are those who can't stay away from him in Luke 15. They're at ease around him. They sense something different about him. Others hold him at arm's length, but Jesus offers the enticing intrigue of fresh hope. What he is really doing at bottom is pulling them into his heart. This is the one that we follow. Yet often Christians have a reputation of being insular, cut off from society and bubbled in as a group. And my hope would be that you can see, kind of obviously from this passage, that only socializing with other Christians is not very Christ-like. If under normal circumstances we're not in lockdown, if the only people you invite into your home are followers of Jesus, you're not being like Jesus. Surrounding yourself with Christians isn't very Christian in like the truest sense of what that word means. And some of us, that would, that's our reality that we're living in. And I think there are two factors that would really, I guess, increase the risk of that for you. Firstly is how long you've been a Christian. The day that, that Matthew responded to this call and followed Jesus, he only had one type of friend. It was other sinners, other tax collectors. But most likely, three years later, when Jesus died, his closest friends were probably other disciples like Peter, James, John, and the like. And so there's something natural about this, that the longer you follow Jesus, the longer you're part of a church, the longer you know, you're in, in this kind of movement, the more and more you're going to meet Christians and, and start new friendships with Christians. And the risk is that in doing that, you'll kind of get everything that you need, all, all the relationships that you need from other Christian people. And so the worst case scenario is in that you can hit a point in your life where you realize that all the relationships of any real substance are with other believers. There's something nice about that, I guess, a little bit, but, but the reality is that you're missing this opportunity to enact, I guess, the life that Jesus has called you to live. The other fact would be if you're like me and your job is working in the Christian world, like helping run a church. I talk with Christians all the time. I work with other Christians. And some of you guys work in like Christian charities, Christian schools, Christian organizations. The encouragement from today's passage would be, if that's you, not to hide behind doing the Lord's work, but to make a conscious effort either to reconnect with old friends who don't know Jesus yet, or to go out and make some new ones, so that we would have opportunities to be like Jesus, to have meals with people who don't know him, to be friends with people who don't know him. But I, don't, I actually don't think that's like maybe our biggest thing here at City Light. For others of us, maybe the, the problem goes the other way. You're actually surrounded with people who wouldn't describe themselves as Christians. And that actually even feels easier to you than going to community group or, or plugging into church. And the risk for some of you, some of us, is that the desire to befriend those who don't know Jesus means that we would actually be in a position where we would compromise. We need to be really clear that the reason that Jesus sought out Matthew was not that Jesus felt like he needed another follower. It wasn't because he needed Matthew to like him. He didn't need to impress him. But Jesus sought him out because he was profoundly aware of Matthew's deep spiritual need. And he wanted to heal him. He had compassion on him. 
He didn't compromise himself in order to reach these people. He wasn't um, at this meal kind of just being a clown or, or drinking too much or trying to fit in. And sometimes it's this idea that what, I guess, the church needs is cooler Christians. But I think it's important to note that what drew unbelievers to Jesus wasn't that he was like them, but it's that he was different. He was a person of integrity, of love, of grace, of compassion and tenderness, which transformed those around him. So we remember that those in our lives, who we do care about and who we love, but don't know Jesus yet, are in need of the same mercy that we received. And so what they need from us is not for us to be the same as them, but to be a presence that is different. To be, a, I guess, a beacon of light, a, an opportunity, a, a sign of grace and of love and of mercy and of truth into their life. Now, as you kind of reflect on this passage, like, if we weren't in lockdown, the really obvious thing to go out and say would be, like, all right, this week, have some people over for dinner. Go eat with some people. Get, mix it around. Get some Christians. Get some, get some of your friends. Crack a nice bottle of wine. Get the magnums out of the freezer. Just go do it. Just have a meal um, and, and you're away. Which is really annoying that we can't do that because that's perfect passage to kind of encourage us to do that. But in the meantime, we might have to think a bit more creatively about what we do. I think by all means, like plan for that. Learn a recipe now so you, when you, you can have people over down the track. Um, but do your walks, do your FaceTimes. But as a church, we want to just help us kind of think of opportunities to kind of just do stuff that's fun together, to do things that are, not, you know, that are enjoyable that you can invite people into. So last week, uh, Mel ran a, a dance class on Zoom, which a bunch of us were at. I gave it a crack. It was, try, it was definitely trying something new for me. I've never done a dance class of any type, let alone on Zoom. Um, had a good bit of fun, though, and so that was great. So we're going to be trying, with, as, as a church, once a week to kind of have something new that's going to be online on Zoom because that's how it is, where you can invite someone into. And so this Thursday night at 7.30 on Zoom, we're going to have a cooking class run by Dave Moran, who's a chef at the General, great restaurant, um, who's going to be teaching us how to cook a meal. And this is great for a few reasons. One is it's going to prepare us for when the lockdown ends, so we will be ready to cook a meal and have people over. But even just this week, it's something you can invite friends to. It's just going to be a chance as, to be doing something fun together as a church, but it's open invite. You can get others involved in it. You will have to sign up early because you'll have to have the ingredients needed to cook whatever we have. I think it's going to be some kind of pasta maybe. Stay tuned for the details of that, exactly what it is. But, um, but to have something in the week to invite people into, to just do something fun. It's just going to be an enjoyable thing to kind of help us get through this lockdown. But also it's a reminder that we're a church that's not about bubbling in. We don't want to be inward-looking people, but we want to be, whenever we have an opportunity, trying to bridge the divide, trying to create inroads so we can share this amazing message of hope with people. So I look forward to that. One other thing I just want to get you to do as well, though, is we've got Alpha tomorrow night. We've got, coming up this year, um, some more opportunities we're going to have to actually draw people in and share the message of the gospel. If you've got people that you want us to be praying for as leadership of the church, that form that Jez got you to open up earlier in another tab would be a great way just to drop in any names of any friends, family members, people you work with that you want us to be praying for, that you would have opportunities to, to love, to care for, um, and to share Jesus with. So you can take a minute to fill that in. We'll, and like, we'll just be me, Jez, and I will be praying for them this week. Um, we'd even just love to be chatting to you if there's any way we can help you connect with them. So please get on that as well. So a few things coming up. Keep your eye on your emails and the Facebook this week about Thursday night as well. Because we've got a God who loved us. We follow a, we follow a, a king 
who wanted to be our friend, who came to us when we were sinners and in need. We want to be a church that does the same. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you uh, for Jesus, that he loves us so much, that even when we were far from him, that he came into this world to bridge the divide, to reach out, to call us to follow him, to show us his love. And we pray that this would transform who we are as a church. We pray that this lockdown wouldn't, um, wouldn't mean that we become callous or uncaring or even more insular or bubbled in, but we would be looking for every opportunity to connect with a world that so deeply, deeply needs you. We pray you'd be helping us do that. We pray that uh, for some of us that you would even just still be showing us who you are. We pray that some, there would be people who would be doing Alpha tomorrow night who would, um, who would just have that opportunity to know, to know you for who you are and your love for them. We just pray, Lord, that you'd be with us in this season. In Jesus' name, amen.